This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's 2017, and we are in our very first series of the new year. I've really been looking forward to this one because it combines two of my favorite things, art history and crime stories. I've been a big art history buff for many years, with my preference being modern art, and more specifically, impressionist art. But I love all kinds of art, and have been lucky enough to see some of the greatest artworks in the world. Some, well, I wouldn't call them disappointing, but perhaps a little underwhelming, mostly due to the hype surrounding them. Like the Mona Lisa. Beautiful, yes, but it's just so tiny. I didn't expect that. And others have really been awesome to behold, like pretty much anything by Michelangelo, The Pieta in the Sistine Chapel was a true religious experience, and the David in Rome was so amazing. And then there are others that just blew me away when I saw them in person. Photos really didn't do them any justice. Like The Girl with the Pearl Earring by Vermeer. If you ever get a chance to see that one up close, do it. It's breathtaking. But far and away, my very favorite artist, and the reason I first became so fascinated by art and art history, is Vincent van Gogh. I have tried to see just as many Van Gogh works as I can, and they always thrill me. They're just amazing. I haven't gotten to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam yet, but believe me, it's on the bucket list. But this isn't an art podcast, and you may be thinking, what does Van Gogh have to do with true crime? Didn't he commit suicide, tortured artists, and all that? Case closed, right? Well, not quite. This is a fascinating story, And there's even a side story that includes a Jack the Ripper-type murderer who plagued Paris during Van Gogh's lifetime. I hope you'll join me as I share with you crimes committed by and against artists in our new series, Artful Crimes. This is Chapter 1, The Death of Vincent Van Gogh. What do you think of when you hear the name Van Gogh? You might think of his works, like Starry Night, Sunflowers, irises, or the yellow room. Those are definitely iconic images. Or you might think of how valuable his paintings are today. His works are often listed as some of the top prices fetched at auction. They were also some of the first to command prices in the multiple millions. In 1987, his painting titled Vase with 15 Sunflowers sold for almost $40 million, or over $83 million in today's dollars. And the prices for his works just continue to go up. The portrait of Dr. Gachet sold in 1990 for $82.5 million, or over $150 million in today's dollars. Or you might remember Vincent van Gogh as the artist that was a bit off his rocker and cut off his own ear, which he then presented to a prostitute. Well, yes, that's him too. The story is mostly true, with some urban legend untruths mixed in, but I'll get to that. But probably the most famous story, aside from the ear-cutting incident, is the story of Van Gogh's death. How Van Gogh went up a hill near a wheat field, set up his easel, painted a final picture, and then took a revolver and shot himself. Fade to black. A very sad and tragic end of a very great artist. Except almost none of that actually happened. And it's very possible, some would even say probable, that Van Gogh didn't commit suicide at all it's possible that Van Gogh was murdered. But before we can get to his death, we must spend a little bit of time exploring his life. There are so many great books, documentaries, and movies about Van Gogh, 
and his life, while fascinating, is very long and very detailed. So long and detailed, in fact, that in preparation for this episode, my resource was an almost 1,000-page book titled Van Gogh, A Life. I will share a link in the show notes. It really is an amazing book, so you can pick it up if you want a little light reading. So I'll give you a very brief outline of Van Gogh's early life and then jump to his final days and the theories surrounding his death. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and Vincent Willem van Gogh was born March 30, 1853, in Zundert, the Netherlands, making him Dutch. He was born into an upper-middle-class family. His father, Theodorus, called Doris, was a minister. He and his wife Anna had six living children, of whom Vincent was the oldest. His brother Theo was born four years later. He had another brother, Cor, and three sisters, Elizabeth, Anna, and Wilhelmina, or Will. As an adult, Vincent stayed in close contact with only two of his siblings, Will and Theo. He would be especially close to Theo all of his life. We know much of the details of Vincent's life due to his lifelong, frequent correspondence with Theo. Between the two of them, there are over 600 letters that detail Vincent's daily life. Anna, Vincent's mother, came from a prominent family and stressed the importance of family, duty, and social position to her children. She and Vincent's father also ran a very religious household. Doris was a minister, as was his father. Vincent began making drawings at a very young age, and Anna encouraged him in this pursuit. There was at least one sculptor in the Van Gogh family, a great uncle of Vincent's. But many of the men in the Van Gogh family became art dealers. Theo, Vincent's younger brother, would become an art dealer of some repute in Paris, while Vincent pursued a career in art after he tried and then abandoned a calling as a minister. He even took a post as a missionary in Belgium, but found he was more interested in sketching the people of his congregation than he was in saving their souls. When Vincent undertook something, he threw himself into it completely, to degrees no one thought was good or healthy. These extremes were some of the first signs of the debilitating mental illness that Vincent would suffer from all of his life. At his first missionary post, he was to serve as a minister to impoverished coal miners. He felt it only right that he live as they did and gave up his lodgings at the parsonage and moved to a hut with no creature comforts. There he slept on straw, gave up wearing shoes, and lived without heat and very little food. The church authorities did not approve and dismissed him from his post for, quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. They believed him to be on the verge of madness, dirty, unkempt, and emaciated. They called his father, and Doris found him in a terrible state in his lowly hut. They tried moving him to a more remote post, but when his behavior did not improve, his father again came to try and talk sense into him. After an argument, Vincent descended into a deep bout of depression that lasted for almost a year. A theme in Vincent's life would be the inability he felt to please his father, combined with his guilt at having disappointed him. He took to punishing himself, apparently, for these transgressions, where he went without food, shelter, warmth, companionship, 
or bathing for prolonged periods of time. He was seen wandering the countryside in the cold winter only in rags. The peasants thought him mad. During this bout of depression, he decided to walk the 47 miles to Brussels, almost dying in the process. His father wanted to have him committed to an insane asylum. While he was in the process of securing a certificate to have him committed, Vincent left. His depression and despair deepened while out alone away from his family. After some time, he finally reached out to Theo, writing him about his current mental state of hopelessness. Theo encouraged him to begin drawing again. This seemed to be the remedy that Vincent needed to anchor himself to a purpose and something he could be passionate about without going off the deep end. Religion and the guilt and shame it made him feel would always be a trigger for Vincent. He began to draw and paint in 1879, and it would be his saving grace, and alternately, his greatest challenge. Between the years of 1880 and 1888, where our story picks up, Van Gogh had painted almost 900 paintings. His attacks, as he called them, continued to happen. But in between bouts of mania or depression, he never ceased painting. His brother Theo had become an art dealer in Paris and was his brother's biggest advocate. He tried to sell his work, but could find no one interested in buying his paintings. In 1881, Vincent became infatuated with a cousin named Key Voss. She was seven years older than him, widowed, and had a small son. Vincent proposed marriage to her, but with no visible means of support, she declined. Her family was also opposed. She ignored his continued advances. He was insistent, even reportedly holding his arm over a flame, vowing to leave it there to burn until she agreed to see him. Someone had the good sense to just blow out the flame. Her family, at their wit's end, called Vincent's parents. He was encouraged to return, and once home, he continued to paint and try to interest the art dealers in the hog to purchase and display his paintings. In 1882, Vincent was in love once again, this time with an alcoholic prostitute named Sien. She had a young daughter and was pregnant with another child when they met. When his father found out about his relationship, he tried to end it, and Vincent at first refused to leave her. In 1883, however, he did leave her. Vincent, never able to support himself, relied on his parents and brother for money to live on, so of course he could not support Sien and her two children. She returned to prostitution, and Vincent left and moved to Drenthe, Netherlands. Sien ended up placing her two children with various relatives. She committed suicide in 1904 by drowning herself in a river. Vincent completed his first major work, The Potato Eaters, in 1885, and met an art dealer who was interested in his paintings. This was what Van Gogh had dreamed of, and yet during this time of his first success, he was devastated when his father died of a heart attack that same year. Vincent would always feel the loss of his father acutely, especially since he felt he never lived up to his expectations, and also because he considered himself at fault for his father's death. He believed that the stress he placed on his father contributed to his early death. Theo, since 1881, had lent Vincent money for art supplies and living expenses. Now that he was a somewhat successful art dealer, he became his only patron. He continued to give Vincent a monthly stipend so he could continue to paint, but he still had little luck selling any of his paintings. Theo told Vincent in 1885 that his paintings were too dark in palette. What was selling at the time were the bright, vivid colors of the new Impressionist-style painters. 
Vincent alternately badgered and criticized his brother for not working harder to sell his paintings, pleaded with him for more funds, and then felt guilt and shame for being a burden to his younger brother. This would continue to be a pattern throughout Vincent's life as well. He would despair at being a burden and contributing to Theo's poor health. Theo had contracted syphilis and his health continued to deteriorate, beginning as a young man. In 1886, Vincent made the move to Paris and at first moved in with Theo. It was in Paris that Vincent became more aware of the new style of painting that was becoming more popular and creating excitement in the art world. Through Theo, he began to meet other artists like Emile Bernard, Toulouse-Lautrec, Georges Seurat, and Paul Signac. He began to change his palette to the bright, vivid, almost violent colors that he is best known for. In Paris, Van Gogh completed over 200 paintings in less than two years. He worked himself to the point of exhaustion and was in ill health. He smoked incessantly and drank too much. He went into deep depressions, especially when drinking absinthe, an anise-flavored drink that was high in alcohol content, sometimes between 45 to 75 percent. In 1887, Vincent and Theo befriended the painter Paul Gauguin. Soon after, Vincent left Paris, having made few friends there due to his odd behavior and his demanding nature. He moved to the south to Arles. He invited his friend Gauguin to visit him there, telling him it was a place of beauty and very conducive to painting. He eagerly anticipated his friend's arrival, once again creating an expectation in his own mind of something wonderful, even perfect. This time it was his friendship with Paul Gauguin and the artist colony they would create in Arles, which he considered a perfect location for artists. As he had with the ministry, with women, and with everything he cared passionately about, Van Gogh went about creating an unrealistic expectation of perfection in his mind that could not help being dashed by the realities of life. It was this expectation that would lead to one of the darkest periods of Vincent's life in very short order. Paul Gauguin arrived in Arles on October 23, 1888. He was a reluctant visitor to Mr. Van Gogh, only having been persuaded by Theo. Gauguin was eager for Theo to sell the paintings he had done during his trip to Martinique, from where he had recently returned. He thought he would be returning to Paris to great acclaim, but it didn't happen. He had sold three of his paintings to Theo, but they had yet failed to secure a buyer. Now he was out of money, and wanting to stay in the good graces of his art dealer friend, he set out for Arles with no great enthusiasm. Vincent had a romantic notion of reviving the health of his friend Gauguin with the fair weather, beauty, and tranquility in Arles. Having heard how ill Gauguin had become in the islands, he planned to nurse him back to health and provide him companionship. He looked forward to working with him side by side. He was renting a room with enough space for a studio in Arles at an inn he called the Yellow House. The house and his room are featured in some of his well-known paintings from his time there. He set up his room in the Yellow House as a place where his friend could regain his health and be inspired to paint. Van Gogh's expectations were soon dashed. He'd expected Gauguin to arrive weak and frail. Instead, Gauguin arrived looking healthy and hearty. Gauguin has arrived in good condition, he wrote Theo. He even seems to me better than I am. Within a few days of his arrival, Theo wrote to say that he had sold one of Gauguin's paintings for a tidy sum and enclosed a money order to him for 500 francs, more than Vincent had ever received. Vincent tried to be cheerful and congratulatory, but it had to be a blow. 
It brought up all the old feelings of worthlessness, shame, and guilt for being a burden to Theo. He desperately wanted to prove his worth as an artist, but he still had not found a receptive audience for his paintings. Things began to grow more strained when word from Paris began to arrive that Gauguin was being hailed as a great artist by no less than Degas himself, who was an important artist and now considered to be one of the founders of Impressionism. In the next couple of months, Theo would sell five of Gauguin's paintings and some of his pottery, sending him almost 1,500 francs in total. Vince began to feel once again like a failure in light of his friend's quick success. To save face, he asked Theo not to try and sell his paintings so that he could tell Gauguin and others that Theo treasured his brother's work too much to sell it. Sadly, he even wrote, Besides, if what I am doing should be good, then we shall lose no money, for it will mature quietly like wine in the cellar. While Vincent continued to be broke, sick, and unpopular with the townspeople, Gauguin, now flushed with cash and becoming somewhat of a celebrity, had many friends and women flocked to him. Vincent was envious, never having been popular with the ladies. It also killed his dream of living with his friend in a monk-like existence, where they lived only to produce great works of art. Meanwhile, Gauguin was in town living it up, drinking and seducing all the beauties of Arles. Vincent and Gauguin also began to get into heated arguments about what constituted true art. Vincent was known to take his easels and set them up wherever the mood struck him, and then quickly and using copious amounts of paint, would dash off his next painting. Gauguin preferred to work in an indoor studio, making only basic sketches in the field before returning to paint slowly and deliberately. It made Vincent crazy. Gauguin wrote to Emile Bernard, Vincent and I hardly see eye to eye, especially in regard to painting. But the arguments weren't just about art. Gauguin, instead of finding Arles as charming as Vincent had hoped, criticized the weather, the miserable food, the cramped quarters, and the sloppiness of his roommate. Vincent became irritated by his friend, and they argued about everything from chores to which restaurants to take their meals in. Vincent even wrote that Gauguin was in possession of, quote, a low forehead, which in the science of phrenology, popular at that time, was a sign of imbecility. In mid-December, Gauguin had had enough of Vincent and Arles. He wrote to Theo, I am obliged to return to Paris. Vincent and I absolutely cannot live side by side any longer because of the incompatibility of our temperaments and because he and I both need tranquility for our work. He is a man of remarkable intelligence, he wrote, possibly because he believed it and possibly because he didn't want to burn any bridges with the art dealer. I hold him in great esteem and leave with regret, but I repeat it is necessary that I leave. But as was Vincent's way, he became even more insistent on keeping the relationship intact. He even rented two additional rooms in the Yellow House to convince him to stay. But Gauguin's mind was made up. As it became clear that Gauguin planned to leave, Vincent's behavior became more erratic. It didn't help that it was now mid-December, and the weeks before Christmas always became more tense for Vincent and were times when he seemed to regularly suffer his attacks. Vincent began to get in more frequent heated arguments with Gauguin about art, religion, and the supernatural, even scribbling on the wall of his room, I am the Holy Spirit. He also began to suffer from attacks of anxiety and later would admit to strange visions and hallucinations. If Gauguin wasn't convinced to leave before, he certainly was now. On December 23rd, after nine weeks of living in Arles with Vincent, Gauguin took his leave. 
Recently, he and Vincent had been hotly debating a story that was front and center in the Paris newspapers. A case of a Jack the Ripper-style killing had been reported. Gauguin and Vincent were debating the nature of murder. Was it a natural instinct, or did it go against human nature, and therefore an abomination? These were the types of questions the new science of criminal anthropology tried to answer. A new art movement, that of the symbolists, also embraced these questions and tended to focus on more morbid subjects, such as death and murder. Poets, writers, and other artists who called themselves symbolists wrote articles with titles like Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts, in which they defended murder as a natural instinct. This crime that he and Gauguin argued about would come to play later in Vincent's life, but more on that later. After another heated argument, Gauguin left the yellow house. He heard footsteps behind him in the dark. Van Gogh was chasing after him. Gauguin, a few days later, reported to a friend, He had been very strange recently, and I did not trust him. Are you going to leave, Vincent demanded. Yes, Gauguin replied. Without another word, Vincent handed him a story torn from the newspaper and pointed to the last line. It read, The murderer has fled. He then ran away back the way he came. Gauguin kept walking and didn't return later sending for his possessions. What Gauguin didn't know was that at this time, Vincent had just received word that his brother Theo had become engaged. Now he felt his rejection was complete. He would once again and forever be alone, he thought, losing his brother to a family of his own and being rejected by Gauguin, who he'd hoped would become like a brother. Now he began to drink in the depths of his despair. Vincent had always been driven to wounding himself in some way, when he became depressed and anxious. Now he picked up a straight razor from the sink in his room, grabbed his earlobe, and pulled at it as hard as he could. He drew the open razor across the flesh of the ear, severing about half of it, cutting savagely at not only the lobe, but the cartilage as well. The wound bled profusely, leaving a trail of blood throughout the small room. He decided to wrap the ear in a piece of newspaper and carry it to Gauguin to show him what he was willing to sacrifice. Maybe then, Vincent thought, deep in his delusion, his friend would reconsider. He covered his mangled ear with a bandage and wore a beret over it, then took to the streets to find Gauguin. He tried the bars and the brothels, but when he could not find him, he tried to see a prostitute named Rachel that Gauguin often visited. When the gatekeeper at the brothel would not let him in, he gave the package containing his ear to him, asking him to carry it to her with the message, Remember me. Theo was looking forward to spending Christmas with his fiancée, Joe. He had planned to travel to Holland to announce the news of their engagement to both of their families. Instead, he received a message that Vincent had fallen gravely ill. He then traveled by train on Christmas Eve to Arles. When he arrived, Vincent was at the hospital and had been moved several times between the fever ward when he would fall into unconsciousness and a padded isolation cell when he would awake and become agitated crying out in garbled Dutch and French, making the staff nervous. After Theo arrived, he calmed down and began to rest. Theo stayed only briefly after seeing his brother was on the mend. By 7.30 that night, Theo was back on the train to Paris with a load of Vincent's paintings, a mere nine hours after he'd arrived in a panic. The doctors saw that his wound would heal, but they were more concerned with his mental state. They quickly wanted to certify him insane and send him to a lunatic asylum. 
Vincent's doctor was the young, inexperienced intern, Dr. Felix Ray. Dr. Ray downgraded these concerns, believing he would be fine, and it was just a case of an overexcitable artist. This is perhaps why Theo felt able to leave so quickly. But Vincent continued to suffer a series of attacks and would be shuttled between the psych ward and the hospital for the next five months. Doctors now decided that he must be committed to one of the two public asylums for a longer duration. But both Vincent's doctors and his family bounced back and forth between the belief in his recovery and the need for a more permanent commitment. Vincent tried to convince them that all was well, even taking Dr. Ray to the Yellow House to show him his paintings and prove that he was once again able to care for himself. He dismissed the ear incident as such a trifle, hardly worth mentioning. He stayed at the Yellow House, but continued to be under the care of Dr. Ray. He even painted the good doctor's portrait, and also two self-portraits in January of 1889, both portraying him with his bandaged ear. But by late February, the police had come to the Yellow House and carted Vincent away, and back to the padded room of the hospital. Unknown to him, the townspeople of Arles had gotten together to sign a petition to have him banished. They, of course, had already heard the frightening tale of his self-mutilation. They had also witnessed the strange man with the bandaged ear, which was even more frightening when it was unbandaged, walking through the town, often drunk and muttering to himself. He would become enraged at anything or nothing and go on tirades. The townspeople sent the petition to the authorities, stating that they lived in fear, especially their women and children. In the name of public security, they demanded that he be sent to his family or committed to a mental asylum forthwith. Meanwhile, the people of Arles weren't that well-behaved themselves. Even before the ear-cutting incident, the children of the town would tease and mock him as that weird painter who carried his paint and easel through the streets, an uncommon sight anywhere and certainly in the tiny village. The adults also shunned him when he returned from his hospital stay. When he passed by, they would tap their heads saying, Fada, which means crazy. Even the prostitutes mocked him, calling him Fa-Ru, or the Mad Redhead. At the hospital, he defended himself by saying that he might have remained more calm if the police had protected him from the women and children of the town, even accusing them of climbing up to peer into his window at him. Any other man would have taken a pistol and shot the gawking idiots, he protested. He wanted to be compensated for the troubles they had caused him. The doctors could not agree on the diagnosis, and he remained locked up for most of his stay at the hospital for the next month. On his 36th birthday, Vincent returned to the Yellow House one last time, this time in the company of the 25-year-old painter, Paul Signac. He began to paint again, but Theo's impending marriage to Joe weighed heavily on Vincent. He began to feel himself unravel. Finally in May, he packed up all of his paintings to be shipped or stored and decided to commit himself voluntarily to the Asylum of St. Paul at San Remy. Vincent arrived at San Remy on May 8, 1889. It was located in a beautiful and serene mountain valley, just 15 miles to the east of Arles. At first, Theo had balked at Vincent's choice of hospitals, hoping he would opt for one of the cheaper public asylums, like the one in Marseille. The asylum at Saint-Rémy focused on creating a serene environment where the patients could convalesce in the peace and beauty of nature. They were encouraged to take advantage of the scenery and get outdoors as much as possible. It had a very small population of patients. When Vincent arrived, there were only about nine other men and about 20 women. 
Vincent soon took positively to the structured and peaceful environment. He began writing to Theo how peaceful he felt, more so than ever before. Of course, he no longer had the stress of the outside world. No creditors at his door, no mocking or suspicious eyes in the streets. He also spoke glowingly of the community he found with the doctors and the other patients. All the patients suffered from some nervous or mental disorder, and for once Vincent felt understood and accepted. All of his adult life he had been scorned, mocked, shunned, and even feared by his neighbors. Here there was no judgment. He was also allowed to paint out of doors and in public, as he preferred to, and there was no one who ridiculed or made fun of him for doing so. In fact, it was considered part of his therapy. Of course, he was still prone to fits of anxiety, paranoia, and sometimes hallucinations, as were many of the other patients. But when this happened, instead of being hauled off by the authorities, the other patients would rush to help calm and soothe one another until the wardens arrived to remove him to a safe place. He had been previously diagnosed with acute mania with generalized delirium, but Dr. Ray had also noted that he suspected Vincent suffered from a kind of epilepsy. Not a physical epilepsy, which at the time was commonly known as the falling sickness. Dr. Ray believed it was a type of mental epilepsy, and as he described it, caused Vincent's mind to seize up when overwhelmed with emotions he could not handle, causing a collapse of thought, perception, reason, and emotion. It was also known as a type of non-convulsive epilepsy. This form of epilepsy sometimes manifested itself as Vincent's did, by bizarre behavior or out-of-control rage and hysteria, and other times the person could seem to fall into a catatonic state. It was at this time that doctors learned about Vincent's family history of epilepsy. His grandfather had died of a mental disease. His mother's sister had suffered from epilepsy her whole life. Another maternal uncle had committed suicide. A paternal uncle had suffered his first epileptic fit at the age of 35. He was left half-paralyzed and died young. Two other uncles were reported to suffer from fits or seizures. These revelations gave Vincent some answers to the problem he suffered and for a time lifted some of the guilt he felt for all the troubles he had caused his family. Vincent's treatment at San Remy also include bromide treatments, which was a sedative, long soaks in a stone tub, regular meals, and very little alcohol. A little wine only was permitted. He became more inspired to paint by the beauty of the landscape. Here he began painting his series of cypress and olive trees, floral paintings including the famous irises, and most famously, Starry Night. At one time, Vincent was working on a total of 12 canvases all at once. This became a very prolific time for Vincent, and some of his most celebrated works were produced during the year he was committed at San Remy. By mid-September, after some attacks and at least one serious setback, Vincent reported feeling completely normal and eating like a horse. It was at this time that Theo wrote him about a doctor in Auvers, a small town north of Paris, that might take Vincent in once he was ready to leave the hospital. More news that boosted his spirits was the report that his paintings were finally being recognized and talked about in Paris. Parisians were approaching Theo to inquire about Vincent's work. The previous fall, some of his paintings had been shown in the Independente show, including his first Starry Night, painted in Arles, and Iris's painted that spring at San Remy. But Christmas time was coming, which was always a fraught time for Vincent's emotions, and the time he most feared an attack. Another attack arrived just before Christmas. He felt this one was without reason. He felt well enough to attempt a trip to Arles in mid-January, but didn't stay long. 
At the same time, an art critic had visited the famous Tanguy Art Gallery in Paris. Having heard about the exciting painting that was being talked and written about, now on display there, Van Gogh's Sunflowers. Of course, he had also heard the bloody story of the painter's attack on himself. He was considered the mad Dutchman painter, and the critic, Albert Aurier, wanted to find out more about him. Aurier was a 24-year-old poet, art critic, and painter. He had embraced the symbolist movement, becoming a writer in symbolist periodicals, as well as other newspapers. He was a hot new critic in Paris, and artists understood that for your paintings to sell, they had to be shown in the galleries, and to be shown in the galleries, they had to be written about in journals. And to be written about by Aurier gave you a golden ticket. Meanwhile, Van Gogh was off the grid at Saint-Rémy and had no idea what was occurring back in Paris, other than the few and far-between letters he received from Theo. Theo was now a married man with a child on the way and was preoccupied with work and family life. He was still providing all of Vincent's income as well as paying for his hospital stay. Gauguin, Van Gogh's old friend, and the artist Emile Bernard were both chomping at the bit to be noticed by Aurier, and had been for some time. Knowing that Aurier was immersed in symbolist circles, they first tried to entice his interest through the recounting of Gauguin's bloody history with Van Gogh. Aurier heard the story secondhand through Bernard, who wrote to him, My best friend, my dear Vincent, is mad. Since I have found out, I am almost mad myself. Bernard, although once a friend of Van Gogh, was hardly his best friend. As a matter of fact, when Gauguin tried to put off his visit to Vincent and Arles, Bernard wrote and offered to come in his stead, which Vincent flatly refused. But trying to appeal to Aurier's symbolist leanings towards darker, more macabre subject matter, Bernard and Gauguin wrote up an account of the incident complete with Poe-like flourishes and the religious symbolry that was so in fashion. Vincent, he said, believed he was some kind of Christ, a being from the other side. He had been driven to madness by strange visions, he wrote, and had accused Gauguin of trying to murder him. The entire population of Arles was in front of our house, and it was then that the gendarmes arrested me, for the house was full of blood. They explained that the police had thought Gauguin had killed Van Gogh. Gauguin was portraying himself as a victim of Van Gogh's madness. Knowing that Aurier had contributed to the debate about murder in the paper Le Figaro, defending murder as a natural instinct, he thought this might grab his attention. The debate had been sparked by a murder that had taken place in Paris. Luis Carlo Prado was one of a group of reported Spaniards, although Prado actually hailed from Peru, who passed themselves off as noblemen and preyed upon wealthy women who they met at Parisian casinos. Prado was accused, tried, and ultimately convicted and executed of murdering a young woman he met at one of the gambling clubs. Marie Aguatant was found with her throat cut in her home. She had been robbed of cash and jewels. Marie was a high-priced prostitute and was known for the large diamond necklace she often wore. Prado had gone with her to her home as a client, hiding his face from the maid before killing her and taking off with money and jewelry. He was soon caught and tried for her murder. He was publicly beheaded on December 2, 1889. The Prado affair, as it was called in the papers, brought to the public the debate the symbolists were engaged in about criminal behavior. Aurier's article made known his fascination with the criminal element. Gauguin had followed the case closely and now thought that his brush with a bloody tale of his own would catch Aurier's interest and his sympathy. But the tables turned on him when Aurier became much more interested in Van Gogh than he was in Gauguin. 
Wasn't the madness that Van Gogh suffered from in his murderous urge, as this was how Gauguin had portrayed it, representative of the primitive and extreme emotions of a true artist? Violence, he believed, was the ultimate rejection of the bourgeois conventions and the true path to pure artistic expression. Arier prized the experience of the tortured artist above all, and Van Gogh fit this ideal to a T. With this in mind, he traveled to Tanguise to see the work of a true artist. He then wrote that he'd found a genius, exciting and powerful, profound and complex, in Vincent Van Gogh. His works were described as unbelievably dazzling. He heaped praise on the Mad Dutchman in his article, and the art galleries clamored to display his paintings, alongside such respected artists as Cezanne and Renoir. Now those critics and artists who had panned his work in the past also began to sing his praises as a true genius of the art world. Toulouse-Lautrec even challenged a critic who dared call Van Gogh a charlatan to a duel. When Van Gogh first heard these reports, he shrugged them off and humbly said, I do not paint like that. But he said he felt very much cheered by it. By May of 1890, Vincent was a bona fide celebrity. He left San Remy on May 16th. Cured was written in his hospital record, and he set out first to visit his brother Theo, his wife Joe, and their new son Vincent, who they'd named after him. Four days later, he took a train to Auvers, where he would continue his recovery under Dr. Paul Gachet. Dr. Gachet was an experienced physician who also understood artists. He treated several with a variety of physical and mental ailments, including Manet, Renoir, and Cezanne. Gachet encouraged him to paint as a therapy, but also possibly because Gachet was also an art collector and had most certainly heard of Vincent's growing celebrity. Vincent rented a small room at the Revue Inn in Auvers that also housed his studio. He took some meals with Dr. Gachet and his family, and some at the inn. Some believe that Van Gogh became interested in Dr. Gachet's daughter, Marguerite, but she did not return his affections. Every day, as was his routine, Vincent would gather up his paint, canvas, easels, and brushes, and lug the entire operation into the countryside to paint in the open air. He was working on some large canvases as well, including his famous Wheat Filled with Crows, that some mistakenly believe was his last painting. It's one of my favorites. I have a large over-life-sized copy that looks over my desk in my office and reminds me of Vincent every day. It shows a golden field of wheat with a bright blue sky above where many black crows circle overhead. In the middle of the painting is a path that inexplicably stops right in the middle. Many have analyzed the painting, saying that this was a prediction of Van Gogh's life, suddenly cut short, with the crows symbolizing death. But there's no evidence that when he painted this, he was in the grip of hopelessness or despair. Vincent, while productive during his time in Auvers, still had challenges. For one, he was lonely. Once again, he was not accepted by the townspeople. Again, they thought him odd, and with his mangled ear, somewhat frightening as well. He had no friends, which his brother Theo tried to remedy by sending other artists to visit him. Anton Hershig, a young Dutch artist, arrived that summer, but didn't stay long. Later, he wrote, I still see him sitting on the bench in front of the window of the little cafe, with his cut-off ear and his wild eyes, in which there was a crazed expression into which I dare not look. A Spanish artist who also ate at the inn was not impressed by Vincent, asking, Who is the pig that did that? when he first saw his paintings. Even his old friend Pissarro, who lived a mere six miles from Auvers, never bothered to visit. Vincent was still teased and mocked, something he was used to and generally ignored. 
but now he was made the butt of ridicule by a certain group of young boys. Their leader was a 16-year-old boy named René Secretan. René was the son of a wealthy pharmacist from Paris. René summered in Auvergne, arriving every June and staying until school began in the fall. René's 18-year-old brother, Gaston, was an aspiring artist. Gaston had befriended Vincent and would often watch him paint and talk with him about art. René, however, used Vincent for sport. He was a bully who loved to play pranks on him. René and his lackeys called Vincent Toto and made him the butt of their jokes. They put salt in his coffee and once put a snake in his paint box. They noticed that he had a habit of sucking on a dry paintbrush as he worked. They rubbed the brush when he wasn't looking with hot red pepper, then watched and laughed as he began to roar as the pepper burned his mouth. René was well known in the town as an overprivileged brat who went around wearing a cowboy costume. He had gone to see Wild Bill Cody's Wild West show at the 1889 Exposition in Paris and had purchased the outfit, complete with boots, fringed coat, and cowboy hat. He had completed the ensemble by purchasing a 380 caliber pea shooter from Gaston Ravou, the innkeeper. René liked to drink and had money, and it seems Vincent put up with his teasing and his pranks, possibly to continue his friendship with Gaston, and also possibly because René would buy him drinks at a local bar. By the third week of July, Vincent was at work on a whole series of new paintings. He put in a large order for paints and was planning for another larger canvas and several smaller works. On Sunday, July 27th, Vincent went out in the morning to paint in the countryside as usual. He returned to the inn for the midday meal. After lunch, he took his easel and canvas under his arm, slung his bag of paints and brushes, and headed back out to work. Several hours later, he stumbled back to the inn. He was empty-handed. It was already dark. He was holding his stomach and seemed to be limping, witnesses said. He went straight to his room. When the innkeeper heard moaning, he went upstairs to check on him. He found Vincent lying on his bed, curled up in pain. Asking him what was wrong, Vincent answered, I wounded myself. A doctor was called. He found a wound just below his ribs, about the size of a large pea. It only bled a little. At the side of the wound, there was a little circle of dark red, and a purple halo had formed around it. The doctor concluded quickly that the wound had been made by a small-caliber pistol. He believed the bullet had missed all his major organs, and probing around for the bullet, thought he located it towards the back of his abdominal cavity. He couldn't know what damage might have been caused without performing surgery. He might possibly have a nicked lung, or he could have some internal bleeding from a grazed artery. It was determined that it was too risky to transport him the many miles it would take to get him to a surgical hospital. Instead, they made him as comfortable as possible and waited to see the outcome. In the meantime, Theo was summoned from Paris. Vincent seemed to be alternately at ease. When Dr. Gachet arrived, he found him smoking his pipe, and at other times grimacing in pain. Theo arrived around noon on the 28th. He'd only been told that Vincent had wounded himself. This, of course, called to mind the terrible Christmas of 1888, where his mental illness had caused him to mutilate himself. He was afraid he'd find him on his deathbed or worse. Instead, he found him sitting up in bed smoking and felt very much relieved. For the rest of the day and into the night, Theo and Vincent were alone, except for periodic check-ins from the doctor. They talked into the night, Theo sitting on a chair beside his bed. Vincent thanked him for coming and asked him about his family and his namesake, baby Vincent. 
As the evening progressed, Vincent's breath became more labored. Theo took stock of the room. He saw the order for more paints and supplies, and no final note or letter, just a first draft of a letter he'd sent Vincent two days earlier. He gave no hint of suicide, he later told Joe. As his brother began to labor to breathe more, Theo laid beside him and held him in his arms. Just after midnight, on July 29th, Vincent said his last words. I want to die like this, he said. Just after one in the morning, Vincent van Gogh breathed his last. Theo later wrote to his mother. He has found the rest he was longing for. Life was a burden to him. Oh, mother, he was so my own, own brother. With Vincent's words, I've wounded myself, rumors flew. But one word that wasn't mentioned initially was suicide. Two days after Vincent's funeral, Emile Bernard once again penned a letter to Albert Aurier. He had not been present over the 30 hours in between Vincent's return to the inn and his death, but he wrote the following description. On Sunday evening, July 27th, Van Gogh went to the Auvergne countryside, placed his easel against a haystack, and went behind the chateau to shoot himself with a revolver. Bernard said he'd heard the details of this account from the innkeeper, Gustave Revu, and the townspeople. This account quickly became the most often repeated version of events and found its way into our common knowledge of the death of Vincent van Gogh. It was firmly cemented as a true story when the scene was written into Irving Stone's 1934 book, Lust for Life, and reached an even larger audience when it was made into a movie in 1956 with Kirk Douglas playing Vincent van Gogh. But as I promised you, I sussed out the true facts, apart from rumors and urban legend, and will detail an alternate theory that points to not suicide, but homicide. Vincent left that afternoon with his easel, his canvas, and his paints. There were witnesses to this fact, and it was what Vincent had been doing as his routine for weeks. But hours later, as it grew dark, he returned empty-handed. Where was his easel, his canvas, his bags and painting supplies? To this day, they have never been recovered, and no one has ever admitted to taking them. Why would a person intent on killing themselves take the time to haul all their equipment with them? Why not head out to the field with just the gun in his possession? And if the goal was to kill himself, why then did he drag himself all the way back to the inn and not just finish himself off with a second gunshot or remain lying in the field until death came? Something else was also missing, never to be found, the gun. Vincent was never known to be in possession of a gun and as a matter of fact, was known to be averse to weapons of any kind. No one ever admitted to giving, selling, or loaning him a gun. There was no suicide note left, strange for a man who wrote volumes of letters throughout his life. It seems someone who did so would want to leave a final account of his thoughts and actions. And if he was suicidal, why now? He'd been in much worse places before. By all accounts, things, while not perfect, were much improved from the past. He was working, cranking out paintings and excited about his work. He was continually sending letters to Theo recounting his current projects. He was planning on more paintings. This was proven by the large order of painting supplies he had just sent for. Yes, he was still not popular and still had his detractors and even one bully, but it was something he'd become accustomed to. It happened all his life and everywhere he went. He didn't seem to be greatly bothered by it. He didn't even mention the bullying to Theo in his letters. He also had just began receiving his very first critical acclaim, something he had worked to obtain for many years. 
and he was anticipating that soon he'd begin selling his paintings. Nor did Vincent ever definitively say he'd attempted to kill himself. When he was first found, he only said he'd wounded himself. He gave no account of how he was in possession of a gun or why he'd shot himself with it. The police arrived to investigate, and one of the first questions they asked him was, did you want to commit suicide, not what happened? Vincent replied, yes, I believe so. Not a very direct confession for someone who was suicidal. They then, unhelpfully, since it was after the fact, reminded him that suicide was a crime, both against the state and against God. At this, Vincent did react strongly, stating, Do not accuse anyone. It is I who wanted to kill myself. Do not accuse anyone? What did that mean? Who was anyone? They hadn't asked him about anyone but himself. If this was a suicide attempt, it was a very strange way to try and kill yourself. 98% of people who attempt suicide with a firearm aim for the head. Vincent had not shot himself in the head, and the bullet was too low to have been aimed at his heart, even if that was his intention. The trajectory of the bullet was also pointed downward. It did not look like a straight path that would be customary in the self-inflicted gunshot wound. So, if all the evidence points to Vincent not shooting himself, then the question is, who did? An alternate theory was hinted at as early as the 1930s, when the art historian John Rewald traveled to Auvers to interview some of the residents who'd lived there during Van Gogh's time and were still living. A rumor he heard then was that some young boys had shot Vincent accidentally. In the book Van Gogh, A Life, the Pulitzer Prize-winning authors Stephen Nafa and Gregory White-Smith, after a decade of research, put together this alternate theory that holds much more water than the original account of his death. On that July afternoon, Vincent headed out of town to set up somewhere to most likely paint the wheat fields. But he never made it there. It was not possible for him to make it back all the way into town with the wound he had suffered. So he must have been somewhere closer to town when he was shot. As a matter of fact, two witnesses years later, talking to two different interviewers a few years apart, both recalled seeing Van Gogh headed not in the direction of the wheat fields, but on the Schopenval Road, which was in the opposite direction. Vincent would sometime take that road as it was where a small bar was located. Vincent was often seen there in the company of 16-year-old René Secretan. The authors believed that Vincent may have encountered René along the Schopenval Road. They also believed Gaston must have been with him, as Vincent wouldn't have wanted to spend time with his tormentor alone, but he enjoyed the company of Gaston. Perhaps, they believe, René played another prank or teased Vincent into anger, as it happened in the past. René, the wannabe cowboy, always carried his small-caliber pistol in his rucksack. Everyone knew this. He didn't go anywhere without it. It's possible that René might have taken his gun out of his rucksack, either as a goof or to scare Vincent if he was becoming angry, and it went off accidentally. If this took place, they believed, it would have been near a farmhouse by the Schopenval Road. From there, Vincent could have made it back, even wounded, to the Ravu Inn, as it was less than half a mile away. The boys, to hide their deed, could have taken Vincent's supplies and hidden them in a barn or somewhere else until they could get rid of them. Later, witnesses would remember the Secretan boys had been in Auvers that summer, but didn't remember seeing them after Vincent was shot. It seems they had left the town abruptly, and much earlier than they usually did. It would be possible for them to take the gun away with them, and ditch it, give it away, or sell it once back in Paris. What about the time between noon and dark when Vincent arrived? 
two possibilities are that Vincent did meet René and Gaston and drank with them somewhere first before the shooting took place. Or he might have passed out after being shot and came too much later when he then stumbled back to the inn. If it was an accident, then it is very likely Vincent didn't want the boys to be blamed for it or charged with the crime. This could explain why he blurted out, Do not accuse anyone. It is I who wanted to kill myself, after being told that suicide was a crime. But why would he die protecting his tormentor? Possibly because Gaston had also been there, and he considered him a friend, his only friend in Auvers. And sadly, because while he didn't set out to die, he might have welcomed the end, having suffered so much and for so long. When it came out of the blue, perhaps he embraced it. In this he may have had the final word, having once written, I would not expressly seek death, but I would not try to evade it if it happened. Starry, starry night. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you'll join me next time for Chapter 2 of Artful Crimes. And join our Facebook fan page for more details about this case. Find out what happened to the Secretan boys. Did they ever talk about the shooting? Also, find out about the debate surrounding Van Gogh's wound and the last word on whether it was self-inflicted or not. I'll be sharing those details there. Go to Facebook and find us under Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page. You can weigh in on this and any other case we've covered. Listeners are welcome to post information, opinions, and start our join-in on discussions on any true crime-related subject. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing assistant is Nancy Chen, and our research assistants are Sabrina Atkinson and Sarah Villarreal. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Upon a Crime. Until next time, be good to one another. Perhaps they'll listen now. Starry, starry night. Flaming flowers that brightly blaze. Swirling clouds in violet haze. Reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue. Colors changing hue. Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now For they could not love you But still your love was true And when no hope was left inside On that starry, starry night You took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent This world was never meant for one as beautiful as you Starry, starry night You can live out your MasterChef dream When you find a professional on Angie To tackle your dream kitchen remodel 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.